In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There's an apocryphal quote from Karl Barth saying that one ought to preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. The real quote's a little bit more complicated than that. But the gist is this. When preaching, you're speaking not just about the text, but into a context, into a community. Today, knowing what to do and say about the text is much easier than having the right words to say into our context. I'm clinging to the Beatitudes these days, not as statements of what we ought to do, but as promises for how the kingdom of God works, that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All that being said, the transfiguration itself can be a difficult text to preach. On one hand, it feels straightforward. The story itself isn't hard to follow. Mountain, dazzling clothes, Moses and Elijah representing law and prophets. Should we build tabernacles? The voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, the end. Easy story, we can follow the details. But this week I found myself asking, why? Why does this happen? Is the transfiguration just one more in a long line of miracles that displays Jesus' power, perhaps his divinity? Well, if we look at the passages before and after, we can get some context to shape our answer to that question, or at least a picture of how Matthew seems to want us to understand it. Just a few verses prior, Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone wants to become his follower, they have to deny themselves and take up their cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their lives will, for his sake, save it. Afterwards, on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells his disciples, tell no one about this revelation of the Son of Man. They then ask him, well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The question is, if you are really the Christ, we've been told that Elijah has to come before you do. It's a question of messianic timing. And Jesus responds by saying that Elijah had already shown up in John the Baptist and both he and Jesus were about to suffer. So on either side of this revelatory glory, we have depictions of suffering. And it doesn't stop there. There are some poignant parallels between the transfiguration and Matthew's account of the crucifixion. Both take place on hills upon which Jesus is flanked by two people. On Mount Tabor, which is one of our best guesses as to which mountain the transfiguration took place on, we've got Moses and Elijah. On Golgotha, it's two thieves probably insurrectionists. Elijah shows up in both as well. In Matthew, after Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone standing nearby believes that he's calling out to Elijah. And then when that person tries to help Jesus, another responds by saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will save him. Just like on Mount Tabor, there's a declaration on Golgotha that Jesus is the son of God, but instead of coming from heaven, it comes from a Roman centurion. It's as if Matthew wants us to see a similarity between these two events, the cross and the transfiguration. Back in today's gospel, God the Father's voice doesn't identify Jesus as the beloved son alone, but it also tells the disciples to listen to him. And interestingly enough, the very next thing that Jesus has to say to them is, get up, do not be afraid. How often it is that the message that people in the Bible receive from God when they see him is that. We could spend some time dwelling on the fact that the unveiled glory of God inspires dread and fear. We can think about the, the veil that is put over Moses' face after he comes down from the mountain in our Old Testament reading. Instead, I just want to stop and consider those particular words as what Jesus says as an encouragement. Why shouldn't they be afraid? They've encountered the holiness of God. 
The answer that we get in scripture is often paired with, do not be afraid, is I am with you. How often does God say, do not be afraid, for I am with you? That's the gist. And what do we see in Matthew? They looked up and they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. We do not need to be afraid, not because God will wipe out the problems in front of us, but because he has promised to be there with us himself as Jesus was with his disciples. Suffering is not to be sought out, we're no masochists, but time and time again in scripture, the glory that we desire to see in mountaintop moments of transfiguration is actually found precisely when we are losing our lives. It certainly was there when Jesus was losing his. Peter reflects on the events of the transfiguration in our reading this morning from his second letter. As he writes it, Peter's nearing the end of his life, and he's facing yet another messianic timing question. While everyone expected the Messiah to usher in a new kingdom, there had not been an expectation that there would be this interim period between the inauguration of that kingdom and its complete fulfillment. So here's the new church with a bunch of founding leaders who might have been anticipating to live until the age of the life of the world to come, and they're dying off. You can imagine the kind of anxiety that everyone in the church might have been feeling in this liminal space. So as part of his exhortation to them, Peter points to the events of the transfiguration, perhaps even reminding them that he was an eyewitness for those who might have doubted, saying, we ourselves heard the voice coming from heaven. And then he says this, you will do well to be attentive to this, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Another translation renders it, hold on to this. As you are going into the dark places, Peter is saying, remember, be attentive. Hold on to the revelation of Christ's majesty on that mountaintop. Jesus is the light of the world. Because the reality is that the glory there and the glory on the cross, the glory in that mountaintop revelation and the glory in suffering are the same glory. We do not always have eyes to see it, but God is there all along. As he was dying, Peter's church might have been concerned about how they would move forward without him. And into that, Peter says this, we have this prophetic message, but no prophecy comes by human will, but by men and women moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Peter opened the passage that we read this morning by saying that they weren't following cleverly devised myths. It's sort of like how Paul brags that his message wasn't based on eloquence. The thing that we hold on to, the thing that shines in the darkness, that fire is not fueled by the genius of the torchbearer, but by the very fire that sparked existence, Jesus. The good we receive, every good gift, has to come from God. To move back into our own context, the heart of this whole All Souls project that we have come to love, if it is worth anything at all, has been Jesus. I can't give you anything that emanates from me. The clergy can't serve and care for you with anything other than Jesus. We will try, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will work to fulfill our ordination vows to God and to you in reflecting Jesus the Messiah and passing on the love that he has shown us. It's actually the exact same work that all of us, clergy and laity alike, have been doing all along and will continue to do for each other. But at the end of the day, especially in our collective grief, the only person who can do the work of healing us is Jesus. The only place we can look as a church is to the one who bore our sorrows himself, the man of sorrows, our good shepherd. 
And that is good news because he can bear our pain better than we can. And there is something, let's admit, nonsensical about how we go about doing it. The fact that we, a community that is wounded and limping and trying to make sense of our own emotional chaos, are about to use our voices and bodies, perhaps our hearts and our souls as well, although I understand if they are lagging behind. We're about to give thanks to God, to ask his Holy Spirit to transform bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, and to hover over our own formless voids like he did in creation, breathing life into chaos and disorder. Like Paul and Silas singing hymns while in chains, we are going to sing to God and ask him to feed us and nourish us because we are weak and hungry and we have no other options. Like I said, I am clinging to the promise that those who mourn are blessed because I could use it right now and I don't know of any other place to turn. The glory of the transfiguration is the glory on display on the cross. In Lent, we enter into repentance. We look at ourselves and we mourn our own sins. We don't long for the cross, but we recognize that in the midst of our sorrows is the one who took it all upon himself. And this Sunday before Lent, this very last Sunday before Ash Wednesday, we are reminded of the transfiguration so that we can carry and hold on to the reminder of the glory of him who walks through this season with us, the light in that darkness. A few weeks ago, my extended family gathered to commend my grandmother into the arms of her savior. And we were reminded of a phrase that she used all the time. Apparently, whenever something was going wrong, whether in her own life or in the lives of her kids or grandkids, or by something going wrong, we mean something done by her kids or grandkids. Her response would be this, I don't understand it, but I'm going to talk to God about it. And I cannot commend to you anything more than that. Our God is a good God who has promised that behind the grief and sorrow, behind the horror of Golgotha, he is there to meet us. And that our suffering will be transformed by his glory. I'm going to close with the lyrics to a song by uh, Wendell Kimbrough. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I've only seen it in print. But I think it probably summarizes my thoughts better than anything else. So let me close with this. Now the days and hours and moments of our suffering seem so long, and the toilsome wait and wondering threaten silence to our song. Now our pain is real and pressing, where our faith is thin and weak, but our hope is set on Jesus, and we cling to him our strength. O eternal weight of glory, O inheritance divine, we will see our Lord redeeming every past and future time. All our pains will be transfigured like the scars of Christ our Lord. We will see the weight of glory and our broken years restored. We will see our wounded Savior. We'll behold him face to face. And we'll hear our anguished stories sung as victory songs of grace. For behold, I tell a mystery. At the trumpet sound we'll wake. Death is swallowed up in victory when we meet our King of grace. Every year we thought was wasted. Every night we cried, how long? All will be a passing moment in our Savior's victory song. Amen.